There you go. Sorry about that. <laughs> I know you don't need that to hear me. I, I can boom it. I can give you the voice, uh, just scream at you and yell at you, but I don't want to do that. Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As you know, we have uh, been going to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 1. We're going to be going over verses 6 through 11 today. <clears throat> I don't want to lose these, so let me put those there. 6 through 11, you have an outline with you so that we can follow along. I believe that one of the best gifts I pray that you can receive as a mom is the assurance that you can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can encourage not only a mom, but a, a Christian so much that the knowledge that despite all of life's struggles and problems and uncertainties and difficulties, that no matter how many spiritual defeats there might be along the way, that one day you will be made perfect. So what the Bible teaches is that one day those that are genuinely saved, those that have uh, been reborn, those that have uh, confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior, those that have repented, and those that are moving forward uh, in their salvation and growing in their salvation, there is an assurance, an assurance that you will be made perfect in, in Jesus Christ. And so for Mother's Day, I'd like for moms to be, and I know there are a lot of fears. I, I don't know about you. I asked my wife yesterday, what were you afraid of when you were first becoming a mom? She says, nothing really that I can remember. You know, weren't you afraid of the pain? I said, well, I knew the pain was going to come. How about, you know, what about this child? Are you going to break it? Are you going to, I, I just knew I'd be able to do it. We weren't Christians at that time. And she just says, I, I just, I don't know. I didn't think nothing of it, really. And the more I ask that question, I think there are a lot of, a lot of people that are afraid. You know, am I going to hurt this child? Am I going to raise them upright? Am I going to bring them up into this world? What about the world that I'm bringing them into? And what about all these different things that may be happening? And the one great thing that you can have as a mom and as a Christian is that God has started a good work in you. And he will see it unto completion. Let's look at what Paul says. And we have to remember that what Paul is talking about, he's talking to the people in Philippi. Philippi is the city, but not just the whole city. He's talking to specifically the church in Philippi. This is why Paul, uh, Paul's letter is called the, the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Or the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. And so the, the letter of the, that, that, is, that we're reading through is, a, is to... Um, it's to a church, a group of people that have become saved, and we talked a little bit about how their salvation came. And I'll share that with you again some other time, I mean, as we're going through this. But in Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read from verses 6 on through 11. And it reads like this. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 3, uh, because we, touch, we touched on those last week. But I'm going to read through that so that it can be all together in context. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. As we talked about last week, we said that partnership is the word koinonia, and koinonia usually is translated into partnership, or uh, it's also translated into uh, togetherness or communion, but most of the time it's translated into fellowship. And so what Paul is saying, I am just overjoyed because of your fellowship 
in the gospel, your partnership in the gospel. And when we partake of fellowship, genuine Christian fellowship, fellowship is always this partaking or belonging or this communion with one another because we have something in common. And that one commonality is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for our sins. We hold that in, in, into our hearts and we sing about it and we, we pray about that and we pray for others as well to join us. Did you know that apart from the gospel, you cannot have fellowship? If you have no gospel, you have no fellowship, at least not with believers. And there are fellowships around the world that people hold on to because they have something in common. But in, in Paul's day and in, in our day as well, this partnership, this fellowship that Paul was talking about is the fellowship of the gospel, sharing the good news with other people. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, after he says, I thank God every time I remember you. And I am sure of this. Paul says, I am just confident and I know that I know that I know of this one thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is Right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partners or again partakers, fellowshippers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for these por- this portion of scripture that we're able to just uh, dive into, to be able to look at and uh, to be able to apply to our life. I thank you, Lord, that um, you started this work in us. We couldn't start it. We couldn't do it, not on our own volition, not on our own free will. I couldn't get this started. As a matter of fact, I had wanted nothing to do with you from the very beginning. But you, my God, saw to it and opened my heart and counted us as those that were appointed unto salvation. So we ask you, Father, to lead us this morning as we gather in your word and we learn more about your grace and about your love, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. It got a little cold in here all of a sudden, right? <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. But anyways, number one, God will begin the work in you. God will begin the work in you. And he says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. It's God that begins the work. It's him. And, and Paul is confident of this. Paul has learned uh, on, on how to understand the sovereignty of God. When Paul was being brought up, he was brought up as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was brought up as a Jewish little boy. And, and everything that was done with Paul and to Paul, as far as the training, the circumcision, the schools that he went to, everything he did, he knew the law backwards and forwards. And for a, a for a Jew and for most Christians as well, we believe that God is sovereign. Amen? He is in control of all things. We have to believe that He's in control. If there is one molecule, one molecule in all this universe that's out there randomly doing its own thing, then God is not in control. And we have to believe that He is totally sovereign. He is totally in control. He reigns. And so therefore, He dictates and He states because He is the one that created all things. And Paul understood this. He understood this, this language. And for some of you, in the, in the beginning, I am sure, uh, some, some translations will say, I am confident. Or, you know, I, I just know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
And by the way, let me stop right there for a moment, because I've been asked here a few times, what translation of the Bible are you reading from? And just so you know that I read from the English Standard Version. Now, there are various types of translations out there, and it all depends on what it is that you want to accomplish through your reading. The ESV, or the English Standard Version, is a, it's more of a word-for-word type of translation from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Aramaic. Now, there are a lot of word-for-word translation books that are out there, like the King James Version. The King James Version is, a, is an, another word-for-word translation. The New American Standard Bible is another word-for-word translation. Now, there is also another translation out there that's called the Thought-for-Thought Translation. And you'll find that in the New Living Translation, the Good News. I'm going to share a verse with you here in just a bit from the Good News uh, Translation as well. So it all depends on what it is that you're trying to accomplish. If you want to follow along with what I'm reading, because I'm asking you to open your Bibles, I'm asking you to study, uh, to open it and to read it with me so that you can see what it is that the Bible teaches. Now, there is no one great authorized translation. I know that there are some people that, that swear by one translation and one translation only, this is the Bible that God gave us to read. If God wanted you to read the authorized translation of His Word, we would be reading out of Hebrew. That's His language. Okay, his language to the Hebrew people was Hebrew, and that's what he spoke, that's what they wrote, and that's what they, what they were reading back then. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ came on the scene, if God wanted to continue the authorized translation, the authorized language, he would have told Jesus Christ, make sure that everybody learns Hebrew, first of all, and you teach them in Hebrew. And none of this Greek stuff, none of this other stuff, because we want it to be authorized. But Jesus came speaking Aramaic. He came speaking Greek. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even the polished Greek. It wasn't the educational Greek. It was the Koine Greek, which, which we call Koine Greek because it was a common Greek. You'll know that you'll talk to some people that are educated and they'll speak to you in lofty languages and they'll, they'll come to you with various types of parables and, uh, you know, euthanisms and some, some of those words you may not even understand what I'm saying, but some of you do. But that's not the way Jesus Christ came to us. He came to us speaking to us in a very down-to-earth language. I can give you all these $5 words, but what is that going to do? As I've been, it's been noted about what I've said before, is somebody has said to me once before, you bring it down to earth, which is what Jesus Christ did. God himself came down to earth and he was the word. So if you want an authorized translation, pick yourself up a Hebrew and a Greek Bible and there you go. But from that comes all kinds of translations, and they help us to understand the original languages. Now, unless you're learned in the original languages, I've studied the original languages. I'm not learned in them. I I don't know them enough to tell you every nuance and every whatnot. But if you want to follow along with what we're reading, it's the English Standard Version. And it'd be great to get a couple other translations as well, the NIV, the NASB, and so on and so forth. I can talk to you more about that later. But remember, there's either the word-for-word or thought-for-thought. We are using the word-for-word, and then we express it, what the authors were trying to get across at that time, giving you the thought-for-thought. Okay? So, once again, Paul says, I am convinced. I am more than sure. I know this because I know what I was taught as a child. I went to the best schools. He had the best teachers. As a matter of fact, Paul was in line to be the next great teacher 
teacher. He was so zealous for God and he wanted to make sure that he pleased God. And when this sect came up, this this company of people that followed this guy that they crucified and because they hung him on a tree, the Bible taught that he was a curse. How can you follow a curse on this planet? And so Paul was, his name was Saul at that time, Saul was going throughout the region crucifying and killing and capturing and imprisoning, taking away their possessions. All these people that followed what they called the people of the way. And they didn't call them Christians until they went into Antioch. And in Antioch, they saw these guys that acted like this Jesus guy. And they said, hey, they're like Christ. They're Christianos or like Christ's or like they're Christians is how the word came out. It didn't come out because Jesus called us Christians. Jesus called us disciples. As a matter of fact, I believe that if Jesus was here today, even he wouldn't want to be a Christian, according to what I've seen and what he sees in the Christian church today. But they were called disciples. Jesus called them disciples. And that's what's what he called them, my flock, my sheep. This is what he, how he addressed them. And, and, and if you want to be a, a learner of the Bible, of, of what's going on, you, you need to understand that there's a lot of things in the Bible that somehow don't make sense because, well, people like the pastors that tell you one thing, and then really it doesn't actually say that. And I'm going to share some verses with you on that. But first of all, here it is. I am sure, I am, I'm just confident that if God has saved you, because this is not of yourselves, you can't save yourself. As a matter of fact, it's not by works. You can't do enough good things for it, uh, for Jesus Christ to save you, for God to believe that you are savable. See, God just chose you. And he, here's, what he, here's what Paul says. One of the verses that are in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is saying, you know, if, if God saved you, Galatians chapter 3 says, 3, 3 says, are, are you so foolish, really? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Are you really that dumb? Are you really that foolish to understand or believe that? See, God requires faith for salvation. You have to have faith. But where does that faith come from? That faith is not something that I work for. That faith is not something that I do. Salvation is by the power of God in response to my faith. But it is God that gives us that faith. You see, it's not what I do. It's what's already been done. And when we first started the book of, uh, of Philippians, I read to you the stories of those that were saved in Philippi. One of them was a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods in Acts 16, 14, would show, who, worship, who was a worshiper of God. And she loved God, but yet she wasn't saved. And what ended up happening was that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now think about this, especially in our day and age. When people are preaching the gospel... Pastors that are preaching the gospel, evangelists, they call themselves evangelists. The one verse that many people go to, you probably know which verse that is, right? I stand at the door and what? I stand at the door and knock. And unless you look at that, let's, let's turn there. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. Just to kind of give you an idea of what it is that we're talking about here. In Revelation chapter 3, this is to the church, verse 14. This is to the church of Laodicea. Now, every one of these churches, these are words that Jesus has sent to the pastor, the angel, the teacher of that church. In verse 14, John says that Jesus wrote this and he says, you know, this is what Jesus Christ said. And I don't know if in your Bible or not, but in my Bible, the words of Jesus are in red. So and that's just to indicate, you know, that these are the words that Jesus is using. 
And in my Bible, it's, it's read, it's to the church, Laodicea. It's to the church, not to the people, not to the sinners, not to the lost people, not to people that they were evangelizing. The church, the called out ones, those that were elected, those that are gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. John says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, beloved, we're going way off course right now. But this is a warning to a church, to a people that claim to be Christians, that claim to be in this building, in the building that they were in. They claim to love God. And this is to a church. And Jesus Christ is saying, you're not, at least if you were cold, I knew that you would be lost. And if you were hot, of course, I know that you'd be, but you're lukewarm. He says, I want to spew you. I want to vomit you. I want to just spit you out of my mouth. He says, and beloved, we have to look at this verse in the context of what it is that Jesus Christ is talking about. He's talking to a people that are just lukewarm. And he says in verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have uh, I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This church in Thyatira was a very wealthy church. They had gold. They had this, this uh, monies that they would earn because of this ointment that they would put on their eyes. And the ointment on their eyes, what it would do, it would help people. And so they made a lot of money out of this salve. And this is why John is saying, Jesus is saying, you're pitiful. They would have this, uh, this clothing that they would wear. They were very rich. And though they thought they were good, they were all that. And a bag of chips, as some people would say. Jesus says, you're nothing. You come to a point now where you trust in your own works. You're trusting in your own self. You're trusting in what you have. And Jesus says, you know what? I want you to know something. You're not. You're wretched. You're a wretched individual, he says. You're, you're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. In other words, that which you own and that which you have is nothing. Because I can see right through you. And here's what Jesus Christ says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And here's the verse. Those whom I love, I reprove and I, I discipline. So be zealous and repent. God says, you know what? I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm sharing this with you because you need to get right. The reason that you're being disciplined, the reason things are happening is because I want you to repent. Turn, change your way. And then he says, behold, here it is. I stand at the door and knock. He's standing at the door and knocking at the church to let the church, to let Jesus Christ into the church. He says, repent. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, think about this verse. And I don't know if you've heard this verse before or not. But most evangelists will use this verse is that Jesus Christ is standing at your door knocking. That you have to let him in. That you have to, you have to decide. That you have to receive. That you, you, you. That's not what it's talking about here. This is talking about saved individuals that have just gone wayward or not following or not just being disobedient. This is talking about a church that believes that they, they've got it all together. They don't need God anymore. They don't need Jesus Christ. This verse has nothing to do with evangelism. However, the verse that I just read, in uh, the, the, the verse that I'm reading here, the one who heard, Lydia, 
in Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyteria, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. It was the Lord who opened her heart. This verse, Revelation 3.20, has taken off a whole new meaning. There are portraits of Jesus Christ standing at a door. and it's a, it's a rounded door. and He's got a lantern and he's knocking. You can see him kind of knocking at the door and you, you see him knocking. If you look really closely at that door, there's no handle on the outside. And so indicating that in order for you to receive Jesus Christ, you have to open the door. Beloved, it's God that opens the door. It's God that opens your heart. It's God that gets you to that point of repentance. It's God that is, well, look at Philippians 2.13 in your outlines. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In John chapter 1, Jesus said, but to all who, I'm sorry, John said, but to all who did receive him, who, all received, who believed in his name, he, the Bible says, he gave them the right to become children of God. It wasn't my decision. It wasn't my desire. It wasn't what I wanted to do. As a matter of fact, in Acts 11, 1 through 2, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. In other words, at the very beginning, the gospel message was proclaimed only to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people thought it was just for them until other people like you and I got saved. And the Jews says, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, they're getting saved. There's evidence of their salvation. They're repenting. They're worshiping God. They're following Jesus Christ. And so what, what they said, and so what Peter went up to Jerusalem of the circumcised party, and he was saying in verses 11, 1 and 2, he says, you know, how can we stop them? How can we stop them of all the things that God is doing? Because God is sovereign and we hold a high view of God. We know that God is the one in total control. In this church, we believe that Jesus Christ and God himself are the ones that are in control. Believing the gospel was only for the Jews. But here's what happened in Acts eleven eighteen: When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying that then the Gentiles also had received repentance that leads to life. It is God. That opens the heart. In Ephesians 1.4, in your outlines, it says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You see, beloved, it's God that chooses you. It's God that brought you here. Many of you think that you're here because it's Mother's Day. Many of you think you're here because you were invited. Many of you think you're here because this is, well, you know, this is something that I should do. I should come on Mother's Day to honor my mom. And some of you, you know, like for instance myself, I can't be next to my mom today. So I call her and I, I send her gifts as best as I can to honor her. But you know, the, the, the truth and the reality of it is, is the reason that you're here is because it is God who's already chosen you. That God's already brought you here to hear the gospel message. That you can be holy and blameless before Him. And it is what God is doing in your life. It is what God is going to do in you to transform you to be His child. Matter of fact, here's what Jesus Christ said in John 6, in your outlines. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What do you do with that? No one can come to Jesus. There are people saying, well, I came to Jesus Christ. I found Jesus like if he was lost. It is God who draws you. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That has always been true. That's been the truth from the very beginning, you know, to the past and even to now into the future. That has always been in every age and every circumstance. Look at verse 13, Acts 13, 48 in your outlines again. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed 
to eternal life believed. There are people that God has already appointed from the foundations of the world, from the very beginning. Paul clearly expresses this truth in Romans 5, 8 through 10, again in your outline. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, when you were a sinner, when you were destitute, wretched, poor, naked, and blind, as Jesus Christ was saying, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even before I can even think of anything or even think of sinning, Jesus Christ already died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We were saved from salvation. A lot of people say, so what was I saved from? Well, Paul says right there that we're saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, did you know that? Did you know that if you're not saved, you're an enemy of God? While we were enemies, an enemy wants nothing to do with God. There are people that are out there saying, well, that person is a good person, and this person is looking for God. Enemies do not look for their enemies. They run from their enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Later on in in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul says, For those whom He foreknew, in other words, He had this foreknowledge, But it's more than just foreknowledge. Yes, God knows everything. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God knows who's going to get saved. Yes, God knows who's not going to get saved. Yes, He knows this. But this foreknowledge, when used in biblical terms, it's a knowing, like Abraham knew Sarah. When when Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son, Seth. And in this knowledge that God has, it's an intimate relationship that God has with you and, and for you. And this foreknowledge, this foreknowing, this foreunderstanding of this relationship, which God, those He knows, He also predestines to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Justification is the process of salvation. Glorification is the process of when we become perfect and stand before the Lord. That's glorification. Uh, You know, and I can go on. Paul wrote in Ephesians to the people in Ephesus, Ephesus chapter 2 verses 4-9, Paul wrote, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love that which with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Before we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses, our sins. We are dead, 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 dead. A dead individual can do nothing to resurrect himself. God has to blow the Holy Spirit in the nostrils of every dead individual to bring them back to life. A dead individual cannot bring himself back to life. We were spiritually dead. In our, in our trespasses, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is God that gives you this gift. You can't do anything for it. Not a result of works. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. You cannot pay for it so that no one can boast. But it is God's gift. When you're dead, He wakes you up. When He's dead, now don't ask me to explain how that all happens. I just know it does. 
I don't know how it is that God, you know, says, you know, I predestined you and I predestined you and, and I, I woke you up. And if you're hearing the word right now and you're hearing it cut your heart, you're realizing that I got to do something. What you need to do is repent. Because in Titus chapter 3, Paul tells him, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regenerating, regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Once again, he saved us, not because of works. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. By his own will, not my will, not me opening up my heart. It's his will that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. And then one last verse I want to share with you. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now get this. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus, he goes up to Jesus and says, You're, You must be from God because no one can do the things that you do. And Jesus turns it around and he says, No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Just like you're born physically, you have to be born spiritually. Just like you were born physically, you, cannot, you, you could not choose to whom you were going to be born, when you were going to be born, how you were going to be born. That was an act of God. And here, Peter is telling us, it is He who has caused us to be born again. It is a, natu- a supernatural act that God does in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean... It, it's, it's not what I do see. And this is the reason I share this with you is because of this. When we see that Paul says, you've got to understand this, that God is faithful. Once again, verse 6. Um, where did he go? And, and I am sure, I am confident. I have this blessed assurance, he says. I have this assurance that he who began a good work in you. It's God that began. And he says, and Paul says, I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because you couldn't do this, God had to do it. Because God can do it. Point number two on the back of your outline, God will bring it to fruition. God began the work. Two, God will complete the work in you. Because he started it, he's going to finish it. And that's why Paul says, I can't believe you Galatians. What, are you so foolish to believe that you were first saved by the Spirit, now you're trying to work it out yourself? And, you know, a lot of people think because it's so amazing. Grace is so amazing to save a wretch like me. That song is about me, beloved. Amazing grace that saved a wretch, a wicked, vile sinner like me. That song is about every person that was dead, God's enemy, apart from God, had nothing to do with God until he opened your heart. And because he did so, because God did so, Paul says, guess what? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will complete it. He will finish it. He has done it. It's already done deal. 
And, you know, in, in the, the way you, you can see, there are a lot of Christians out there, so-called Christians that worry and stress and, and are, are fighting and angry and fighting for their rights and trying to get everything done and making sure they get everything they deserve. Beloved, if you got what you deserved, you wouldn't want it. Because the Bible says that each one of us deserve the wrath of God. But by His grace, you are saved. And Christians are, should be the, the last people to worry about what's going on in this planet. Should be the last people to worry about this, this sickness and the government and the wars and the rumors of wars. They should be the last people to, to be concerned about the things on this planet. Preserving the planet, saving the planet. You know, I've read the end of the book, beloved. The end of the planet, it ends. God destroys it. I don't care how many cans you save, electric vehicles you, you, you drive, and how much gas you don't burn. This planet is going to get blown up. It's been like that from the very beginning. And it's futile to think that we, mankind, can save this planet. Now, without God, yeah. Yeah, if, if you don't believe in God, well, you, you have to do everything yourself in order to make sure that this planet continues to survive. There's something, some, something here that you need to take, take note of that that some people kind of like look over. It's the, the term, the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus, and very briefly, I'm just going to describe this to you. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, what, what, uh, what Paul has just told the people in, in uh, Thessalonica, he says to them, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. You know, because they were kind of concerned. And they said, what about, you know, Jesus Christ is returning, he's going to come back for us, but what about all the people that have died? And Paul says, well, I don't want you to be concerned. And it's interesting because he always uses that term, fallen asleep. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be you know, too concerned. I don't, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know that those who have fallen asleep, we will, they will, they will, at the sound of the last trumpet, they will rise first and they will meet Jesus Christ in the air. They're the ones that are going to go first. And so if... <laughs> You know, and some of you have lost some loved ones, and it's difficult to try to get that picture in your head. But you know, the, the beauty behind it all is they're the ones that are going to go first. And those of us who are left behind, the Bible says, will be caught up with him in midair. And when he said that, Paul says, those who have died first, then us will go next. So don't worry about those who have passed away. God is going to complete the work in you. He's going to see it through to completion. Just focus on what he's already done and how it is that you are to live. That's why we have God's word. And then he says a little bit later in chapter 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. escape. Two terms here. The day of Christ Jesus is what Paul uses in the book of Philippians. The day of the Lord he uses in the book of Thessalonica, Thessalonians. The day of the Lord is equated to the day of God, the day of judgment, the day of vengeance, the day of when everything is going to be obliterated. The day of the, the, day of the Lord is not the rapture. The day of the Lord, when, when a thief comes, it's never a good thing. So when we're trying to equate this thief, thief in the night of Jesus Christ coming, it's not a good thing. It's not taking the people, you know, as, you know, two are in the field and one is taken. It's this, it's this judgment that's going to come at the end time. Now, if you, we've studied this a little bit, and I'm just going to briefly go over it with you. The end time, eschatology, and this is the way I read the scriptures, because I, I believe that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, the tribulation, the rapture is going to happen first, and then the tribulation starts. There are no signs 
before the rapture. As a matter of fact, the rapture is a sign. That as soon as the rapture happens, then the tribulation starts. There are people that believe that uh, the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Three and a half years, and then boom, then the church gets raptured. And then there's another group of people that believe that they're going to get raptured at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Well, the way I read scripture is that we get raptured at the beginning. We're taken up, then the tribulation starts. There'll be three and a half years of peace and prosperity. After the three and a half years of peace and prosperity, there's going to be mayhem going through all over the place. And that's when all hell literally breaks loose. After the seven-year tribulation, we're going to come back down with Jesus Christ clothed in white robes, and we're going to rule on the planet for a thousand years. Satan will be bound and put in the abyss, not hell, but into the abyss. And he will be bound up. And uh, there's no sense in trying to bind Satan now. <laughs> you know, because that's not going to happen. You cannot bind Satan. And I don't know how many times people try to say, we can bind him, we can bind him. No, you can't. He's not, but he's free to run around. That's God's plan. When God, when Jesus returns, he will bind him, put him in the abyss. And then after a thousand years of ruling on the planet as believers, then Satan's going to be let loose for a season. Revelation 19 says, you know, that that's, I, I don't know how that's going to take place. I don't know how long a season is. It only gives us those two verses that he's going to be let loose for a season. Don't know how far that is or how long that is, but it's a season. Maybe another, I don't know, 4,000 years. I don't know. But the f fact of the matter is, is after that time of Satan roaming the, the planet, and deceiving as many people as possible, then that's when the total end comes, the world gets destroyed, Satan is cast into hell, along with the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then those who have died without Christ, the judgment books are going to be opened, and they will sit before the great white throne, and they will stand there and God will say, look, let me show you why it is that you are going to spend eternity apart from God. Eternity in a place called hell. Eternity with, without any grace or any remission. It, it, this is why. And he will show the rejection and the hatred and the, the unwillingness to submit to God. And, and those people, not that hell was created for them. You see, Satan is not in hell right now. It's not a big party. They're not down there celebrating. It's not a place where Satan wants to be. As a matter of fact, he knows that. And in that process, see, the great day of the Lord is that. But what Paul is talking about is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a day of rewards. It is a day of, of being able to be set, set up and receive your rewards for what you have done in the Lord. When Paul talks about the great day or that day, you'll see, you'll see the metaphor many times in, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You'll see these things taking place. And, in, in, and if you look at this, if you see the day of the Lord, you'll always understand, you'll always know that it is those that have been, that God has selected, He's given the rewards at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some sections in the Bible that give us the day of the Lord Jesus, like for instance in Philippians chapter 1 verse 10, and we'll see that again in chapter 2 verse 16. You'll see uh, uh, in Philippians 1 6, We'll see the day of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5, and you'll see the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.8. And all those terms refer to the time when believers will receive their rewards. And every other time in the Old Testament when it talks about the, the day of the Lord, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but the day of God, the day of vengeance, it's that ultimate day. And it can get a little confusing. The one thing that you need to know is you can be assured that one thing, that if God started this work in you, He's going to see it unto completion. That's the assurance that every person, every Christian, 
And for Mother's Day, moms, that is the assurance that you can have. Because regardless of what else goes on in the world, and if you want your loved ones to know this, then they need the gospel message as well. Because you see, once the gospel message is received, it, it does, it's not like God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you and see how you do with it. And if it works out, then I'll let you have it all. You didn't do good. Okay, I'm going to take it away from you. There's some people that believe that, that, that God can do that. He's that precocious. He's that, you know, willy-nilly. He says, yeah, you know, you just tick me off. I'm taking that away from you. You're not doing good with it. If you're genuinely saved, God starts it in you. He's going to see it into completion. Now, you'll see a lot of disobedient Christians. So what about those that have backslidden? You know, they were on fire, going with Jesus Christ and doing all these things. What about those guys? Well, John says in 1 John, says, you know, uh, that we don't know. We don't know if they're really genuinely saved or not, but the fact that they have left us, they departed from us, just shows that they were never of us. When we start looking at the end times, the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we start looking at the end times, the very first things, and just turn with me to Matthew 24. I've shared this with you already, but in Matthew 24, that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then so at verse 3 it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I've pointed this out a few times already. So some of you already know where I'm going with this. Because what a lot of people do is they start looking at the signs, you know, the, the, the most miraculous signs or the big signs, you know, the rewards and rumors of wars. And there'll be earthquakes and famines in diverse places. There'll be, you know, all these other things. And that's what people are looking for when they see an earthquake. You know, right away, is it the end of the world? You know, when there's a war going on, is Jesus Christ coming back already? And there's this, this COVID thing that happened. It's because of the pest that are supposed to happen beforehand. But the very first thing that Jesus Christ says is this in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. The very first sign of the end times, the very first thing that's going to happen is that people are going to try to lead you astray. As a matter of fact, he says this three times. And um, he says in, in, in verse 11, in many and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then he says it again uh, a little bit later. In verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And this he says three different times. He says this over and over and over again. See that you're not deceived. You see, you have to know what the scriptures say. You have to know what the Bible teaches about his, the end time. You have to know what the Bible teaches about your life right now. If you're genuinely saved, you have nothing to worry about. So stop worrying. Don't do it. You know that part where the Bible says, people say, I don't understand the Bible, Pastor. I don't. Well, you know that part where it says, don't worry? He goes, yeah, well, well don't do that. If you just work on that one thing for the rest of your life, it'll keep you busy, right? Amen? I mean, you know, it's, finish, this, finish this with me. You know, I'm going to say part of a sentence and you finish the that. I am at the end of my... 
Okay, or wits, okay. I am about to give. I am so tired, depressed. You name it. You guys are experts at this. <laughs> you guys are good at this. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the one. Jesus tells us, going back to Matthew. You know, I, I just love this. I, I've got I've to quit here eventually. But um, it, going back to Matthew. If you go back to Matthew and you look at Matthew chapter uh, 6. Okay, we're Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. In the top of my Bible, in the, in the columns there, it says, do not be anxious. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't worry. Don't stress. Don't worry. Be happy, as Bob Marley would say. What, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry. And he says, you know what? When you worry, it's not even a natural thing to do. It's not natural. Some people I've heard, they say, well, I was born a warrior. No, you weren't. It's not natural for you to worry. You weren't born a war- warrior. You were not. You learned that behavior. Look what Jesus says in the rest of this chapter. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I mean, it's just amazing on how the birds go everywhere and they eat. Are you not more valuable than they? You are. You see, a bird cannot be redeemed. An angel cannot be redeemed. As a matter of fact, you are God's special creation because he's given you chance upon chance upon chance to redeem you, for you to repent. The angels, they sinned and boom, they're cast down one third of them to, to destruction. You are greater than angels because you're redeemable and they aren't. Look at the next verse, 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? People are worried about their life. People are worried about their health. People are worried about this COVID. People are worried about smoking, drinking. I got to quit smoking. I got to quit drinking. Well, you should stop smoking and drinking, please. You know, and you should be careful. You should wear masks if you're going to get sick. or you don't, don't hang around people that have a cold or sneezing on your faces or whatever the case may be. Take care of yourself. But don't think that by taking care of yourself, you're going to add a single hour to your life. Don't think that you're going to be able to extend your life. You can't extend your life. Your life's already been set by God. God is sovereign. You see, in this church, we have a high view of God. A high view of God. Now, I'm not dancing. I'm just, <laughs> I have a, I'm hallelujah. We have a high view of God and we recognize his sovereignty. We recognize that he is in total control. We recognize that he's sovereign. And because he is sovereign, he has my life already in his hands. He has your life in his hands. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And when we look at what God is doing, we got to recognize and realize he's doing something. It may not make sense to us, but he's doing something. And no matter how much I try, I cannot add any time to my life. My life is going to end when it ends. That's all there is to it. Now, I can extend the quality of my life if I stop smoking, drinking, and, and all that other stuff. I, I can extend the good part of my life because, you know, by all intent and purposes, I should have died a long time ago. <laughs> really? I should have. Many of you are thinking, yeah, I should have too. Things that have happened. But yet, you're here. And so Jesus says, who are you by worrying can add a single span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
you know, some of you that have been planted in your gardens and, you know, throughout the years and you see the flowers, but right now, right now is a beautiful, beautiful example of God's glory. Just the, the colors and the smells and the fragrances of the, jasm, the jasmine and, and, uh, and the lavender. And, and some of you have rosemary and, and all these various colors and how the birds come and they tweet and they eat and they leave. This is a beautiful time to recognize God's glorious design. And Jesus says, not even Solomon, the richest king in the world, not even the guy that had everything and everything he was laden with gold and everything he wore. You think, you know, some of these gangsters have all this golden bling. You know, Solomon had the bling. He had his golden Cadillac or Camelac. He had, um, you know, he, he had it all, you know, big wheels, you know, music bouncing. He had singers and all the Solomon in all his glory, Jesus says, could, don't even compare to the beauty of God's creation. You know, God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? Don't you think so? But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is going to get thrown into the oven, you know, that as beautiful as all those flowers are, I'm already seeing my, my jasmine, the, the white and the smell. I'm already seeing it dry up and fall off the, the tree, off the bush. It only lasts for a moment. Is alive today and thrown into the oven tomorrow. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? It is not natural to worry. You're not a born worrier. The great thing is, is because it's something that you learn, you can unlearn it. You can unlearn how to worry. When you recognize this important principle, that he who began a good work in you will see it unto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You learn that and you recognize that, you hold on to that. And regardless of what the world might throw, you, throw at you, no matter how poor you might get, no matter how sick you might be, no matter how devastating this world might be, no matter what may come of you, because God is more interested in you than he is birds and flowers. It's not natural. That's why Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, come on. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the pagans, those that aren't saved, they have something to worry. They, they seek after these things. Now, they should worry. They should worry. And basically what Jesus is saying right here, he says this, look. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, your Father knows that you need them all. The pagans, they don't have a heavenly Father. They should worry. When you worry, you're acting like you don't have a Father. You are acting like the pagans. You are acting like the Gentiles. You are acting as if God doesn't care for you. But he who began a good work in you will see it unto completion. And I love the last verse. Many of you already know this verse. Verse 33. What does he say? What does he say? But all together. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And guess what? He who began a good work in you will see it unto completion. Paul says, I am assured of this. I know this. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation. Purchased of blood. This is my story. This is my song. 
This is when I get to the when I get to the other side, there's only going to be one name that I'm going to proclaim, and that's Jesus Christ. I'm not going to call on any other president, any other person, any other pastor, any other pe- I don't no one but Jesus Christ because he is the one that started the good work in you, moms, in you, church. And he wants to see it under completion. You know, if there's no other verse that you ever memorize, let it be this one and that one. Seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because he started the work in you. And he's going to see it under completion. Seek first what he's going to do. And then he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is it's a, don't trouble. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough worries today. <laughs> now, I'm not saying be careless. I'm not saying just sit there and do nothing. We, we have to have some sort of worry about, okay, how am I going to get to the doctor's office tomorrow? All right, I got to make sure I got gas. You know, gas is expensive. I better save some money. Okay, you start worrying about the things that you need to do. If you can take care of it, take care of it. If you can't take care of it, Jesus says, you know what? Tomorrow has enough worries of itself. But what about this? And what about that? And what about you know, over here? Wait till you get there. And there's some people that worry about what they did yesterday. Oh, man, I can't believe I did. I can't. I did this. I did that. And, you know, and it's all messed up. And they're all messed up from the past. And you're, you're in today, you're worried about yesterday, you're worried about tomorrow, and all that does is mess up your today. And guess what happens tomorrow morning when you wake up? It starts all over again. Oh man, I shouldn't have worried yesterday. I shouldn't have been like, but what about tomorrow? And it starts all over again. Get out of this vicious cycle and understand that he who began a good work in you will see it onto completion. That is a promise that is declared by God, and God does not lie. Amen? Let me ask you to stand Now, without even knowing you personally. Oh, can I get the moms to come over here? That are over there. And somebody answer that phone. (laughs) Somebody's calling to say Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Oh, very good, yeah. It's a reminder to, it's time to go. I want to pray for the moms, okay? I want to pray for all the moms. And Christine as well, okay? Yeah. Okay, all right, very good. I want to pray for the moms. And I'm going to ask, yeah, you guys come on all the forward. I want to pray for you guys. And, and, and that's okay. That's fine. I'll, I'll go down there right now. That he who began a good work in you. A lot, a lot of you moms, you know, and, and without even knowing who you are or what kind of mothering skills you have, I, I already know that, you know, you, you made a lot of mistakes. Amen? But we're not here to point those out. We're not here to point out mistakes you made. We're not here to point out how good of a bad of a mom you are. But there are a lot, there's probably a lot of guilt and shame in your life because of what happened or could have happened or didn't happen. There's a lot of regrets that you have, maybe. And I, I want you to just put that aside for right now, okay? You can't be living in the past. You can't drive down the street looking through the rearview mirror. What you need to do is have this confidence, this assurance that if God began something in you, that He's going to see it under completion, okay? Can you guys come on, please? Because I have something I want to hand out to you guys as well, okay? But I just want to pray for all the moms, okay? Amen? All you moms that are here, I want to thank you guys for being here, first of all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you once again for the promise that you've given us. You've given us the promise that, that you, that if we are in you, that we have been committed to you, that if you have brought us to this point of salvation where you opened our hearts and you re- we recognize your, your son, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, and that I need to repent and move forward. 
that you began that work. It's nothing that I can do, but you're doing it right now. And I, I have to believe, Lord, because you're sovereign and you're great and you're, you're an awesome God that you're going to see this unto completion. So I pray, Father, for every mom that is here. Yes, we've all made mistakes. Moms probably feel it the most. They feel it the most because of how they started and, and how things might have gone through and, and how they've ended. But I pray, God, that right now that you just give them this calm assurance that you're still working in their lives and in the lives of their children. So, Father, I pray for your blessing upon them today, that they recognize how they are honored, at least by us here at North Park, and how we love them. And we pray, God, that you just continue to bless them and use them in a mighty way. So, Father, we just lift them up to you and the rest of us, Lord, as well, that each one that is here not only receive the message from moms and the message that we had for the moms, but each one of us as believers, as Christians, can know that you will complete what you started. You don't leave us behind. You don't give us half measures. You don't start and then stop. You will complete it. So I pray that we can move forward and know that and learn that, I pray. Thank you once again, Lord. I pray for the food and the fellowship that we're going to have here uh, right afterward. I pray that you nourish us through both food and fellowship and the time we share together. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. All right, moms. Here's your ticket.